I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good dollar, but I think I paid too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan Wood Podcast, episode 121. I am your host, Matthew P.M. And this is the podcast coming at you from the Sammoncho Studios in the Shinjuku District of Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. Covering AI news, markets, news analysis, conflict in the Indo-Pacific, and the de-dollarization... I bid thee welcome to this podcast. A nice sunny November afternoon here in central Tokyo. I bid thee good day, Mr. Listener or Ms. Listener for joining us. This is going to be the second podcast for the week. The uh, previous podcast, I covered a lot of AI Tech Society 5.0 and conflict in the uh, Indo-Pacific and moving up into the into into the recent issues with those ships in Japan and whatnot. So if you're interested in that, make sure to go check out episode 119. Give us a review and do all that. Uh, today we're going to actually focus a little bit more on domestic issues and the de-dollarization is something that I've been meaning to cover more for a while and we'll have to find a way to incorporate crypto and Bitcoin into it. Bitcoin in uh, Japan, it's big, but it's not as easy to understand as you would think. Uh, it's, it, they keep the, a low profile, and probably for good reason. So it may take some digging, but uh, we'll push into that zone because once the uh, central bank digital currencies come in, and I'm not really interested in, in what that all means, I mean... I'm very interested in what it means. I'm just not interested in joining the system. It looks, it's too dark. It's too creepy. It's too weird. We're not allowed to vote on it. And it's coming up from top, up top, like the International Monetary Fund is telling all the central banks how to manage their CBDCs. And it's like, so we don't get to choose. We just go through it. I mean, shouldn't there be an opt-out system? Oh, we're not going to force you to take it. You just won't be able to exist in real life, in polite society, like what happened in COVID. Oh, you don't want to take this shot? Well, we don't want you killing grandma. So, you know, uh, you're not allowed to board a plane or travel by train if you were in Canada. Uh, restrictions all over the place and, um, and coercion, social coercion and all that threats, just constantly walking around with threats up your ass. Uh, so we all know that that's probably going to be some element involved in the future. But one aspect I'm thinking of is like, they're over fearing it right now. There's so much, you're going to die. If you use CBDCs, you're going to be basically a Jew in the Holocaust. And people go, what? That doesn't seem like real. I don't think so. And we use the CBDCs and it's like, well, look, I, can use my money. It's just, it's, I can only use it within a three year time frame. But if I want to save it, I can put it into a green energy fund. And so it's not like living in Hitler at all. It's just fine. So your, your fear is, it's this uh, science of fear element that is used where you amplify something by 10,000% and bring it in with a 200% increase from what it was previously. And instead of expecting a 10,000%, it's only a 200%, which makes it feel like it's nothing changed at all. So there's like this mental 
capacity that people have when it comes to fear or, or they even do it themselves. I thought it was going to be like a 50,000% increase on fear, but it turns out it was only 225% or 200%. But if you do the math, I mean, it's almost like it's nothing. Whereas before it, the fear wasn't even there, it was just in your mind. So you're basically... Uh, your brain is accustomed to living with like fear dynamics from an evolutionary point of view. And the bankers are just exploiting that right now to ease us into the CBDC world, which you look into it and it looks pretty weird to me. Anyways, let's begin. Um, we'll, we'll come back to the, the CBDCs and the de-dollarization later. Uh, this is a podcast from Japan, but the well, Japan is like the third or now the fourth largest economy in the world, depending on how you look at it. Germany, which is also a, con a country that's decreasing in value, is overtaking Japan only because Japan's currency is now worth so little that it's no longer a large, as large a contender as it was previously. I mean, it's not like things are going up because they're good. It's just like some people are failing worse than others. Um and yeah, it's like having a race where one person breaks their leg halfway through the race. The other one sprains their ankle and, you know, gets shot in the stomach. But they somehow managed to cross the finish line first and uh, they're the winner. And it's like, wow, you guys are winning. And meanwhile, people are just bleeding all over the place. You know, ambulances can't come because there's a protest outside. Just stop oil is like throwing paint on all the posters in the crowd and stopping the ambulances from coming in. It's like, look, we're winning. We're environmentally friendly and our economy is doing better than we thought it was before. We beat the other guy just flailing madness flopping around. <laughs> All right. So from Japan's perspective, keeping an eye on the de-dollarization is in terms of self-preservation, it's over the horizon, um, outside of the periphery, but very much involved in how it's going to affect your lettuce prices down the line. Very much so. So, yeah, we're all interested in lettuce prices. That's why we tune into the podcast. But I think you know what I mean by that. I hope you know what I mean. Uh, let's take a look at the, the topic list here. Let's get it rolling. So we're going to begin... Um, uh, in hectic post-COVID Japan, more people prefer sleeping to partying year-end polls. So I guess I can put this under the the virus uh, headline here, the topic. Coronavirus. The Wuhan flu doesn't kill you. The media panic will. Now do whatever the government tells you to do. Japan has uh, seen a, a massive tourism recovery post-COVID, but societally, it's been really negatively affected, in my opinion, and a lot of people are less fun. There's still a lot of masks going on and uh, disrupting the fun of Japan for a couple of years with the with the lockdowns and the early closings and you can't serve alcohol with um you know al food that goes with alcohol or you can't serve wine at an Italian restaurant it kind of sucked the fun out of the place and people found other things to do with their lives because that's the way people go they're like water right markets are like water people are like water when you look at it in aggregate we're all just giant teams of penguins swimming in the seas uh, and it, it's, it's affected overall the mentality of the country, not a hundred percent, but like 25 to 35%, I would say something that used to be 95% guaranteed fun before COVID is like, it's less fun now. 
And I'm coming at this from somebody who should be looking forward to having fun. I've had a couple of kids in the past few years and uh, I haven't been able to socialize as much as I used to. I used to be a very social person. And now when I go out, I'm like, well, this food isn't as good as it used to be. And this service isn't as good and it's way more expensive. And that's not just as fun, is it? Tokyo. Attending, for this comes to us from the Mainichi, uh, Japan's national daily since 1922. Attending year-end parties effectively top the list of things people do not want to do toward the end of the year, a recent survey by a Japanese company has found. Uh, just going to stop it here. When I was working in the office companies, uh, is, uh, when I was working in corporate, I've done so a few times, uh, the end of year parties was like, it was one of the things to do. Um, people would plan it months in advance. People would go to, you'd have a few of them. You would go, it, it was like a, a bonenkai, the, the time of year to forget. And people would just go out and have five or six different year end parties, drink, be merry, feast at all of them with their various groups, their coworkers or their business associates or their high school friends or some sort of group that they belong to a jogging group. Uh, and it was like, that was part of society and bars and restaurants everywhere would be holding up Bonenkai party signs and we do Bonenkai and da, 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 da. You still see it around these days, but there's not like a big push for it as there was before. Uh, big changes. I'm telling you people, it's different. It's different. According to the online questionnaire conducted by Tenshil Inc., a Tokyo-based health and sleep-related goods manufacturer and seller. Well, these people are biased. They, they don't want to, they'd rather sleep than going to a party, says this Tokyo sleep-related goods manufacturer found. 25.7% <laughs> of respondents cited year-end parties among things they wish to avoid as 2023 comes to a close, with multiple answers permitted. This followed the most common answer that their views were not among the options, given at 37%. The year-end party aversion was followed by studying at 22.6% and going on a trip at 15.3%. Conversely, 41.6% of respondents said they'd rather sleep at the year's end, followed by responses including wanting to, quote, relieve fatigue at 38.4% and spend time with family at 33%. When asked if people this year were experiencing accumulated fatigue more than normal, a total of 66.1% answered yes or somewhat. This group was further asked to cite their activities, and it goes on from there. We're not going to get too much into it. Um, we'll just say Mas uh, Masaki Nishida, head of Waseda's University Sleep Research Institute, who analyzed the survey's results, commented, quote, it is thought that a greater number of people this year find themselves worn out due to the boost in activities in the, quote, post-coronavirus crisis and the abnormally hot summer. With a backlash from the sudden increase in socializing, the survey outcome strongly suggests people are inclined to heal their fatigue by sleeping, end quote. And that's exactly how he sounded. I looked it up. Uh, just a couple of other things before we move on to some other topics here related to Japan. Continuing with the Mainichi, olive oil shock. So if you're listening to this in Japan and you're an olive oil freak, you got to get out right now and you got to prepare. This is like doomsday preppers for olive oil lovers out there because the wave of inflation is coming and it's not going to be as uh, you're not going to you can't be ol ol oblivious to it. Okay, instead of oblivious. 
It's it's my mom. Okay, Tokyo European olive oil, which has been gaining popularity in Japan mainly due to growing health awareness, has seen its price soar. This is attributed to a poor olive crop caused by global warming. Oh, this is why I wanted to do it. This has nothing to do with the amount of nitrogen being reduced and fertilizer being shipped because we canceled Russia from the economy and they make the nitrogen and uh, we has nothing to do with the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines, uh, you know, which is, uh, contributes to companies in Germany and Europe producing um, ni- nitrogen based fertilizers it has nothing to do with that. It's just global warming. These prices that we're increasing, that are increasing, have nothing to do with the actions of our societies. Nothing. It's all because of global warming. And if you continue to question me, I'm going to go ahead and call you a racist. All right. So it's just like, yes, the pipelines were bombed. Yes, the fertilizer is not being shipped as much and the costs are increasing. Uh, and uh, we're transitioning to a green economy and we want to close all the farms because those are bad for the environment. We got to get rid of the cows because those are bad for the environment. We all know that cow manure does not do anything for crops or anything like that. Has nothing to to do with this bevy of horrible decisions that are being made by our our leaders in question here. It's only because of global warming and potentially, if you question it, racism, that's you, racist. Uh, The price of olive oil in Japan has been slowly rising due to higher transportation costs and the weak yen global warming. But this fall, this fall, this autumn, some products have seen an increase of 50% at once. An Italian restaurant owner in Tokyo revealed, quote, we use extra virgin olive oil for salads, but for dishes prepared with heat, we managed to use a blend of sunflower oil and olive oil. Seed oils. I don't use seed oils anymore. Screw that. I barely use oil at all. I only use olive oil to make hamburgers every Saturday for my family and their amazing hamburgers. I use New Zealand beef and I put pepper uh, egg yolk, a little bit of milk, lots of ground pepper into the raw mix and crushed garlic so that I make these really fat patties. And sometimes if you just have no hamburger flavoring, it's fine if the hamburger is thin and you got the mayo and, and the mustard and on other sides of the patty and whatever you want, ketchup, all that. But once you get a fat patty, like and I'm talking like two or three centimeters thick, the middle of the burger can get stale, but once you hit that middle of the burger with my burger patties and it's garlic and pepper and it's just finely strewn through the burger, like there's no clumps, you're kind of going, this almost tastes better than the condiments. Anyways, but I don't use uh, seed oils. According to the, oh, sorry, the owner said, sorry, we use a blend of sunflower oil and olive oil. The owner said that the restaurant is trying to keep costs down while minimizing the impact of the flavor on aroma. According to the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications Consumer Price Index, the price of cooking oil rose 58% in September compared to the level in 2020. In the case of, yeah, because in the, only in the past two years has global warming occurred to the point where it would increase this much. Nothing to do with any of those decisions that I previously mentioned. Nothing. Nothing. Kicking Russia out of SWIFT was great for democracy. And furthermore, 
getting rid of all the nitrogen production was also really good for the fertilizer industry. Okay, we're decarbonizing here. And that's why it's global warming. These people are so dumb. Um, the biggest factor behind the price hike is a serious crop failure in Europe, a major olive growing region. Heat waves and droughts in Spain and other Mediterranean coastal areas this last year and this year. According to the European Commission, olive oil production in Spain for the 2022-2023 season declined by 56% compared to the previous season. The European as a whole saw a 39% decrease. The price of olive oil has reportedly risen nearly uh, to nearly double that of a year ago as of this summer in Spain and other countries. Japan, which imported about 60,000 metric tons in 2022, led by Spanish products, has also been greatly affected. According to preliminary trade statistics, the volume of imports between January and August this year fell 15.7% from the same period last year, while the value increased 18.6%. And it goes on from there. If you're interested, I'll be linking it up there, but I just thought... Well, these um these ramifications that we're seeing because of our actions, not maybe the drought the, the weather has definitely has an impact on it, but you have to also factor in everything else. Also, labor shortages, uh, people who you know who who either couldn't work because they had the vaccine and got damaged by it, or people who couldn't work because they didn't have the vaccine and couldn't work because of the laws and stipulations that happens uh, not in. I'm not going to go into the numbers and all that, but that happened as well. Labor shortages, labor crunches. Uh, we also have a lot of um, uh, weakness in the European uh, Union nations right now. And so I'm not, yeah, I, you can't really just say it global warming. And that's one of the reasons I, I chose this article. Yeah, we can't just say global warming, my Nietzsche, over and over and over again. But that's what journalists do these days. Why take a risk when you could just say global warming? Yeah. Why would you include something negative about something, about the decisions we've made? Because that would be bad. Now it's global warming and it's fine. It's good. <laughs> Idiots. A uh, little bit more on the Japan economy before we move on to more, uh, you know, sultry topics here. I just thought this is crazy. Now, this this ties into the olive oil thing a little bit, as well as the, um, you know, people sleeping at home to going out, just like the, the changes, the overall changes is evident by the corporate culture and um, imports, exports, as well as budgetary applications. We're just seeing a lot of like, it's, it's, it's disingenuous, but it's real at the same time. What do I mean by that? Um, People aren't being honest with themselves. Japan's parliament on Monday began deliberations on a 13.2 trillion yen extra budget for fiscal 2023 to next March. As the government moves to fund an economy supporting package that aims to alleviate the burden of rising, rising prices on households. So we're going to print more money to save you money. The additional spending will bring the total expenditure for the year to a whopping 127.58 trillion yen, of which a third will be secured by issuing government debt. Well, that's not going to come back to haunt us. <laughs> Since when does debt do that? Ah, this is a crazy idea. But we'll see if um, who buys the debt and all that. I don't want to be too much of a negative Nancy, and I know that debt is a way to do all this stuff, so... Um, debt issuance for the supplementary budget alone is 8.88 trillion yen. 
The Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida wants there to have a supplementary budget approved by the Diet by the end of this month. Work to draft an additional budget for fiscal 2024 will intensify in December. The government says it is committed to restoring Japan's fiscal health, the worst among major developed nations, by reducing spending, but it has made it clear that it's going to more spend more. Now get this. We get peanuts, everybody, in Japan. Part of the extra budget will be used to provide 70,000 yen, or probably like $525, to low-income houses uh, that are exempt from paying tax. Wow, what a windfall for us all. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're a low-income household that is exempt from paying tax, you can get around $500 for free from the government. That's, you know, free. The increased funding is necessary to extend subsidies on fuel until next spring and to give tax incentives to small and mid-sized companies that raise wages. Inflation in Japan remains high due to surging energy costs that are driven up by the weekend. Um, it, it kinda, it, that's about it from there. Uh, so just again, those numbers are absolutely crazy. Uh, so if we do, uh, it's about a hundred billion dollars, a hundred billion, 13.2 trillion yen is about a hundred billion dollars and 127 trillion yen is about $1 trillion. Wow. Jeez. Jeez. Good thing we printed all that money in COVID. Good thing we shut down the economy, printed all that money, and then just started giving it away to people and then having no 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 activity in that time. Jeez, that's crazy. That's how I think Nuremberg 2.0 needs to happen. Like people need to we should be really like pushing for a Nuremberg 2.0. I'm not saying hang them, but some sort of consequences is what I'm saying. Consequences. Because I didn't want to go along with all that. And uh, we were right. We were totally right. Anyways, that is Japan for today. We'll move on to the other topics. We'll do this one pretty quick as a palate cleanser. I'm going to eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just going to eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm going to go catch that one. No, finish the one that you have in your mouth first. Yes, we are witnessing more and more rollout of experimental insect-based products in Japan. Coming to us from the Nikkei Japanese, and I'm just using Google Translate to do this, Two companies in Guma Prefecture sell drinks containing cricket powder in demonstration experiment. I'll be posting photos of this to MatthewPMBigelow.com. You can also go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, the official website of the Japan What Podcast, to get all the links to the articles I'm talking about today, photos, and some donation ideas as well. All right. So if you want to see these cricket powder drink machines, go to MatthewPMBigelow.com. A uh, future note, uh, which aims to popularize insect eating and Sandan retail systems, which manufactures vending machines, announced on the 19th that they would sell coffee containing edible cricket powder to the Guma Prefectural Office. <laughs> Installed the machine uh, uh, for a test run that will begin uh, when 
on the 19th, so that's just a couple of days ago, and the demonstration experiments will begin in November to determine how much demand there is for cricket food. The coffee machine was installed in Netsugen, a public-private co-creation space on the 32nd floor of the prefectural office. In addition to hot chocolate and cafe mocha containing cricket powder, they also sell regular cafe mocha and coffee without crickets. The price is 200 yen. For hot chocolate, you can choose between 2 grams and 4 grams of cricket powder. The experiment is expected to last a minimum of two years. By comparing it with regular menu items, they will verify how much demand there is for drinks containing cricket powder. They are also considering a questionnaire survey. Because there's nothing like doing homework after you purchase something from a vending machine. According to future note president Ren Sakurai, uh, the one that the drink with the crickets is less sweet and has a cleaner taste. Yeah, I'm sure it has a cleaner taste. Insect food is attracting attention as a source of protein with low environmental impact. President Sakurai says that if determined there is a need, there is a possibility that we can expand our sales channels to gyms, coffees, and etc. Usually the uh, model for cricket rollout in Japan is to for people to come in and say, hey, your region used to eat crickets uh, or bugs. It's a part of your culture. So it's a part of your culture. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, that's why we set up a giant factory on the outside of your town and we're producing, you know, between 900 kilograms and, you know, two tons of crickets every couple of weeks. And we want to um, pulverize them into powder and put them into your bread and feed them to your kids at your schools. And they go, what? Like, well, it's your culture. It's your culture. But today we see a more um, advantageous, like a more market-driven approach to have sexy labels put on cricket drinks and sell them at the city office. Um, and we can imagine it's like, well, they're drinking like, hey, I have all these crickets that they're not selling. I have these vending machines that aren't being used. Well, if you have cricket powder and you have vending machines, oh, Match made in insect coffee heaven. Just that thing that we've always wanted. Next, there's one more bug story for today. Is cricket beer delicious? A drink that touches people's emotions. This comes to us from Forbes, Japan. So going outside of the usual uh, sphere of cricket content for the podcast, which 99% of the time comes from Yahoo!, and focuses on the cultural child aspects. Now we're getting coffee and beer. So we're just using Google Translate to do this again. A craft beer contains containing cricket protein has been released for restaurants. This is the third in a series of 52 types of feeling beer that expresses people's emotions based on the theory of the emotional wheel proposed by psychologist Robert Plutchik. This is why I stopped drinking craft beer. I used to be Mr. Craft Beer, the bitter IPA, the crazy IPA, some sort of weird, you know, bourbon cask, uh, peaty black beer wine that's been just like put through three runs or whatever it is. And you get from the bar like 35 milliliters and you pay five, 1500 yen or like 12 bucks for it. I used to be that guy. Now I'm not because of where the the culture has taken us. It's gone. It went from like having fun and making really interesting tastes to like 
half the beers now are like cinnamon milk roll um, ale bread. And it's like, well, this it's like breakfast cereals half the time. Um, really sweet. And it's appealing to like gamers, I think, who, 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 really, who really just want a bit of a beer buzz, but are so fat. They just need about all that sugar as well. And so I've gone back to just straight beer. And uh, it just tastes like beer. It's beer. And you're done the beer and you haven't had to feel like you need a questionnaire. You haven't feel like you need to join a club or go to a revolution. It just tastes good. Now, there are Baird beer uh, brand in Japan is a great beer brand. And I would drink their craft beer all day if I could. But for the most part, it's just like, why are you trying to indoctrinate me into some sort of weird way of thinking? It's just a beer. Well, hold my crickets is what Crip Feeling Beer tells us. This sunny weather makes you feel regret beer is a product of Bugswell, which conducts research and development on insect food. Using cricket protein as a fermentation promoter, ugh, roasted wakame seaweed and rock salt, the beer is said to be a saison craft beer with a deep, sharp bitterness and a slight malty taste that you feel after drinking. Feeling beer is a series of beers that express 52 types of human emotions based on the emotional model called the emotional wheel, proposed by American psychologist Robert Plutchik in 1980. The wheel of emotions. Is that my wife? The wheel of emotions is a diagram of the relationships between eight basic emotions. Joy, trust, fear, surprise, sadness, disgust, anger, and expectation. And the idea is that all emotions can be explained by the degree and combination of these emotions. Uh, so far far an IPA that contains feelings and Hajimari no I have been sold. With the beer one, I don't feel joy. I feel intense distrust. I feel a little bit of fear. Uh, not surprised anymore. Oh, sadness, very high. Disgust, very high. Anger, even higher. And expectation, just low, low expectations. Um, it, the Bugswell describes this bug beer as having a deep bitterness similar to abalone liver on the first sip and a mineral aroma on the nose reminiscent of the aroma of a sun-kissed seaside stone. The company aims to popularize eating insects but believes it will take some time for it to be accepted as a common diet. Never! The concept of this beer is to combine human emotions and the experience of eating insects to offer a variety of food options. All right, that's it. Thank you, Forbes. Can you believe, of course, I'll be posting the bug beer pictures to MatthewPMBigelow.com. Uh, notice how it's never just like, here's a beer. Sit back and enjoy yourself. It's never like that. Here's a piece of cricket bread. Why not put some butter on it and enjoy your time? It's always like a homework and some sort of weird psychology experiment. It's like, it, it feels like a, I'm being like spoofed on some sort of YouTube channel. Like somebody's going to pop out of the closet. Brooms will go everywhere. Like a wet mop will hit me in the head and they'll be like, gotcha. This is not really a real beer at all. It's just a psycho YouTube channel. And that would make more sense to me than these markets that they're trying to push with eating the bugs. I'm going to eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just going to eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm going to go catch that one. No, finish the one that you have in your mouth first. All right. Um, have you ever thought about... Uh, don't, I don't, have you ever thought about donating to the Japan What Podcast? 
Of course you have. Now we make it easier than ever. You can go with PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. We're also part of the podcasting in, uh, podcasting 2.0 infrastructure, which is a distributed, decentralized Bitcoin payment method of sending Satoshi's Bitcoin micropayments from apps to creators or podcasters such as myself. Just download a modern day podcasting app. Uh, Podverse is good. CurioCaster, PodFans. There are others. Get your get Albi wallet connected, and now you can basically, if the podcaster has set up their account, stream Satoshi's directly from your wallet to the podcaster. So this creates a support network, and it also prevents um, the middle managers from coming in. Like what we saw recently with OpenAI, they centralize their systems, and it invites a bevy of weirdos to come in and screw everything up for everybody. We've seen a lot of censorious nature developing in the podcasting infrastructure, big podcasting spheres like YouTube and Spotify and all that. But podcasting 2.0 circumnavigates that by being based on open source protocols and direct consumer to creator interfacing payment options. Go check it out. It's very interesting. Podverse is the, uh, my app of choice. All right, let's take a look at de-dollarization. Or just go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, send us some traffic, send us some love, check out the pictures, links, and more. There's uh, multiple ways to support the shows. Now we're going to take a look at de-dollarization. Here we go. In a way, China is leading the de-dollarization move and Russia is um, very much helping it as well. Russia has the energy to provide China and China is now um, brokering deals all over the place to provide yuan-denominated funding to, to various organizations or various governments and uh, more and more governments are taking them up on this option. It's small right now, but I mean, small compared to the overall American market, but American dollar is a, almost like a hegemony, a so-called hegemony, but the yuan is um, snapping it up here and there and a little bit of everywhere. And so is Russia. Uh, a lot of this kind of comes to us from uh, Twitter and one, one account is uh, the Gold Telegraph, and these are just some tweets that I'll read out. Uh, you can look up at Gold Telegraph. I think it's, it's pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting Twitter X account. Breaking news. Singapore has linked its system to enable real-time money transfers with Indonesia. The authorities also signed a letter of intent to establish a local currency settlement framework. That was on November 18th, 2023. You can look it up. If I'm wrong, just let me know. Uh, MatthewPMBigelow.com. Uh, another one from uh, Twitter is King Kong 199, user King Kong 9888, Eric Young. And he says, I just had dinner with a mainland China economist who is in the know with the higher powers in China. This is what he told me. Since the Fed started aggressively raking heights, China has commenced a program where it lends U.S. dollars to global South countries who lack U.S. dollars, but demanding yuan, RMB, remimbi, as payment for those loans. 
the collateral are mining, coastal ports, and energy rights in those global South countries. This information has not yet been made public. I will report once more and find out more from this guy. So that could just be bull crap. It could be bull sugar. I get it. It's just a tweet. But do you think that the Washington Post or your 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 New World Order repeater station that you'd probably lovingly call your local newspaper would ever report on these things or these trends? Uh, no, they're 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 very terrified of this, and that's probably why they're looking forward to rolling out the central bank digital currencies as quickly as possible to maybe maintain their hegemony while at the same time you know blowing blowing a bunch of holes in, into the what it means for people to just be free with their money. What was that? Yeah, doesn't matter. Next one. Um, this one, this, this is a minor one before we get to the major one. But it, it, once we see like the edges of the empire begin to fray, it's not like it's going to be major things at first. And this one comes to us from a French article, a uh, French website called... Um, L'economistemagreben.com. And the headline is La Russie et le Venezuela confirment leur plan de dollarisation. Dead dollar isation. Uh, not bad with French, <clears throat> but um, what that basically means is Russia and Venezuela confirm their plans for de dollarization. Now, Venezuela is not really anything worth mentioning, but it's just under the frame of de-dollarization, it, well, it's happening a little bit more. And Venezuela is in the South of America. So if we see more, if we see this spread in Latin America and into South America, well, it, it, it puts a further dent into America's purview of the region. Uh, I'll just read a couple of these. I'm going to be translating on the fly here. I'll read a couple of sentences in French, just so you can kind of hear my command of the language and then change over. La Russie et le Venezuela utiliseront leur monnaie nationale dans leurs échanges commerciaux, a annoncé le ministre venezuelan des Affaires étrangères. And that would say, Russia and Venezuela are using their own national currencies in their economic or commercial exchanges, um, which was announced by the Venezuelan Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, Moscow and Caracas are moving forward towards their de-dollarization and are, will hopefully soon pass, um, be able to pass their no national currencies in their commercial exchanges. Um, the central banks in Moscow and Caracas um, are working on the aspect, technical aspects and technological uh, changement, changings, uh, but the two partners uh, could... Um, Abandonner. Oh, they abandon the, very soon the American dollar and start to use their own local currencies um, in their uh, uh, transnational transactions. Um, they added, uh, and I think that's fine. But it says the le ministère de, des affaires étrangères a également souligné que les principaux pays en développement, en particulier les pays BRICS, Brésil, Russie, Inde, Chine et Afrique du Sud. Euh, poursuivant la politique de dédollarisation afin de réduire l'influence de dollars américains. And that translates as um, these, uh, foreign, uh, these foreign affairs ministers um, are also 
uh, in talks or, you know, uh, assuming or, or signing with other countries in the BRICS um, to also move forward with de-dollarization. I, I, I can't, some of that's a little bit beyond above my pay grade for the podcast, but that's just one other example of Russia and Venezuela confirming their plans to de-dollarize. Um, and then the couple of other ones for de-dollarization, um, this comes to us from uh, Al Monitor, which is independent trusted coverage of the Middle East, apparently, uh, almonitor.com. What $6.9 billion China-Saudi currency swap means for Beijing's efforts to globalize Yuan. Now, this is, of course, a lot more significant than Russia and Venezuela. <laughs> Let's be honest. Saudi Arabia, the oil producing Mecca, and China, the largest importer of Saudi oil. Uh, maybe if they've been doing that with dollars for the past couple of decades, that's a lot of dollars being used. But if they decide not to use the dollars to exchange these, well, that's going to put a big dent into American um, oil fiat uh, head. Had, currency hegemony as well. Um, Jack Dutton writes on November 20th, 2023. China's and Saudi Arabia's central banks signed a local currency swap agreement worth up to 50 billion yuan, uh, $7 billion, or 26 billion Saudi rials, the banks said in separate statements Monday, as Riyadh continues to deepen trade with Beijing. And they're, Saudi Arabia is like running away from America right now. Once, like, America, we're going to de-dollarize. We want everything to be equitable. We we need um, more green energy, and we're going to shut down all of our oil in transition. Saudi Arabia is going to be like, dude, that's everything what we're about is just not that. We, we've been investing in solar panels, but really? I mean, come on. This is oil, Bobby. Bobby, let's go. Um, so that's, you know, just as we sent Russia into the arms of Beijing by kicking them out of the SWIFT system for their, uh, actions in the Donbass region, which could be justified depending on how you look at it, could not be justified depending on how you look at it, but it's, it, you know, they haven't taken Kiev. They haven't anyways, it's, it's a big mess, but at the same time now, I don't think bombing the Nord Stream pipelines, Russia's gone, dudes. <laughs> They're not coming back. They don't care. They see a lot more energy potential in what they're aligning themselves with now. And uh, the G7 is going to really suck a dick because of it. Um, the Saudi Central Bank said in a statement that the pact it had signed with the People's Bank of China would be valid for three years and could be extended by mutual agreement. The swap agreement means that currency risk is lower for both countries to use the other's currency. As a result, the financing costs for using the rial and yuan will be lower for both China and Saudi Arabia, and both countries will have easier access to the other's currency. This means that a Saudi company, for example, may be more likely to choose to finance in yuan instead of U.S. dollars than before the swap agreement was made. This, in turn, will increase the Chinese foothold in the Saudi economy and vice versa. So it's just a BRICS move, right? We have Brazil in on the BRICS and then we have Venezuela come in on the BRICS with via Russia, Saudi with coming in via China. 
all this stuff. Saudi Arabia is the world's biggest crude oil producer, and China is the biggest customer, is its biggest customer, importing around $65 billion worth last year, according to Reuters data. China is also the world's largest energy user, and the kingdom's richness, richness in energy is one of the reasons why the two countries have been looking to deepen ties. Last paragraph, I will just look here. Head of the Egyptian Commercial Service at the Ministry of Trade and Industry, Yaha Atwad Wiginbila, told Azraq Business Monday that the North African country is exploring the possibility of using local trade, uh, local currencies to, for joint trade with Saudi Arabia. So we also see that other countries are, are looking, making inroads into the BRICS as well, potentially even, yeah, uh, Egypt, Egypt through uh, Saudi. It's it's becoming more like a decentralized multi-hub polar system uh, rather than the U.S. hegemonium. If, if the U.S. was was in a better position, I'd still be kind of keen on. Uh, even though I might not like a lot of what the U.S. does, but if if they're providing stability via the alliances that I'm, uh, you know, uh, associated with because of my birth, you know, I'm Canadian living in Japan. These two countries are are very much. <clears throat> like they're very much in on what America does, even though they might not like America, they basically do whatever America tells them to do. Um, and now we're just seeing America go into like this tailspin of identity crisis. Everything has to be trans in terms of the culture. We, everything's turning down the energy so that we can focus on a transition, but we don't know where the transition is. And they just keep on saying we need more solar panels and offshore wind farms. And that's going to make everything better when we know it won't. Then they say we need to have everybody on electrical grids and you can't have gas stoves. And it's just like this whole like weird, weird, like a uh, net of, uh, of restrictive control just being put over the entire societies. And we're seeing like, Oh, now we have greenhouse gas taxes and we're, that's basically an air tax by the way. And so a lot of countries around the world are just kind of going and you're putting Joe Biden in charge of this, an 81 year old senior citizen who can't string three words together. And we're supposed to believe you because the Washington post says that Joe Biden's a really good guy. We don't really believe you. We're not that dumb. We're not as dumb as you guys. We're actually much smarter than you. We go to your meets and you're dumb. We're, we're tired of your dumbness. We're going to go do our own thing. We're going to go build our own thing. Next one, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, releases Digital Currency Handbook for World's Central Banks. Now, woo, this is a, this is a doozy, the doozy of doozies. All right, and this comes to us from ZeroHedge.com via the Epoch Times, authored by Naveen Anthropuli. Basically... Chinese dissident writers in America, essayists, and Indian um, writers are like the best, the best writers in the world right now when it comes to nonfiction and analysis. They 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 really know how to cut to the chase and keep their eye on the ball. It's it's great. All right, so this comes. Uh, the International Monetary Fund released a handbook for global central banks regarding the development and implementation of central bank digital currencies. Boo, boo, Japan, what podcast against the IMF central bank digital currency virtual handbook published last week. Oh, you better believe we'll be posting that at MatthewPMBigelow.com. Woo. 
uh, pointed out that the increased use of CBDCs can reduce dollarization of the global economy, a situation where countries move away from relying on the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. Dédollarisation would push up borrowing costs in the United States, making loans expensive for businesses and individuals, thus affecting economic growth. Stock market values can also crash, reducing the savings and investments of Americans. Sounds great. In addition to the de-dollarization, a CBDC could increase risks of flight to safety from retail bank deposits and periods of market stress. During times of market volatility, customers withdraw their deposits and move it into safe assets to avoid losing money in scenarios like bank collapses. Quote, Oh, sorry. The IMF handbook was published as the organization's director, Kristaliana Georgieva, that's a nice name, promoted the use of CBDCs at the Singapore FinTech Festival on November 15th, arguing that such digital currencies could bring an end to the cash-based economy. Quote, CBDs can replace cash, which is costly to distribute in inland in island economies, end quote, she said during a speech. CBDCs would offer a safe and low-cost alternative to cash. They would also offer a bridge to go between private monies and a yardstick to measure their value, just like cash today, which we can withdraw from our banks, end quote. That sounds like she's lying about a bunch of stuff or is like we're, we're, we're covering, we're putting a bunch of glitter on a, on a, on a mattress and under the mattress, it's filled with dead bodies. And like, look at the glitter. Back in May, Miss Georgieva said that the world was heading towards widespread CBDC adoption without considering the risks involving in such a transition. Quote, what we are careful about is the choice between wholesale and retail CBDCs. We think that wholesale CBDCs can be put in place with fairly little space for undesirable surprises, whereas retail CBDCs, they completely transform the financial system in a way that we don't quite know what the consequences it would bring, end quote, she said. The government, U.S. government CBDC. Well, the IMF pushes ahead for the promotion of CBDCs, Republican lawmakers, U.S. Republican lawmakers are taking steps to prevent the U.S. government from issuing such digital currencies. In a September 12th press release, uh, Representative Tom Emmer, a Republican from Minnesota, pointed out that unlike decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, CBDCs are designed and issued by a government and... Quote, transact on a digital ledger that is controlled by that government. This would give the administration the power to surveil Americans' transactions and choke out politically unpopular activity. Uh, it kind of goes on from there. Um, a CBDC could also lead to the, the politicization of the payment system, potentially undermining the independence of the Fed, uh, uh, one Ms. Bowman said. Who's Ms. Bowman? Federal Reserve Board member Michelle Bowman warned in a speech that CBDCs may pose significant risks. In May, Florida House Representative passed a bill banning the use of CBDCs in the state. The bill defended, defined money to exclude CBDC. Weeks before the bill passed, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had pointed to China as a potential example of how CBDCs could negatively affect people. Quote, Look no further than China in seeing the impact of centralized digital currency, he said. The People's Bank of China uses its central bank to monitor citizen behavior, allowing for the surveillance of spending habits and to cut off access to goods and services, end quote, he said. So <clears throat> we can see that there's, um, 
the 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 ultra nationalist government or the supranationalist government national governments the IMF the WHO all those people really want to push for the CBDCs and one thing that I learned from like the experience of using things like Bitcoin or the um, COVID pandemic QR code measures is that the the QR code is a very strange thing even when I was at CTEC. Um, the tech festival or symposium or whatever it is a few weeks ago, uh, I had to get, uh, I had to pre-print a pass to get in if, for the Japan, what podcast and it had a QR code on it. And every time somebody would give you something, you know, they're always giving out pens or rulers and all that. They would scan my QR code and I thought it would just be like my name, but every time they scanned my QR code, that company got my email and also put me on an email list. I got a free pen out of it. So the QR code is like this very mysterious but powerful tool. And it's a double-edged sword, of course, because if I use my Bitcoin QR code and you have your Bitcoin QR code, it puts my representation of what's behind the QR code, Bitcoin, to your representation of what's behind your Bitcoin QR code, which is just Bitcoin. We can transfer there and it's recorded on a ledger somewhere and la-di-da, it's done. But with the COVID uh, mechanisms and all that, it put the, the entire government bureaucracy in, in a QR code. So you'd scan a QR code to go into a hospital and, you know, it's attached to your phone. There's a timestamp, there's cameras, but you can't access any of them. If you wanted to get information or download forms or have things scanned, you would have to preload your QR code with a whole bunch of data and then they could scan it and you have to keep it in your pocket. And it's basically not just government health, but public health is surveillance, essentially. One big aspect of public health is surveillance, knowing where people are going who are ill and not ill and it's surveillance. So you can really amp up the surveillance aspect of these things. And then also with the central bank digital currencies, you you use your CBDC somewhere with your QR code attached to your phone, has your number, has the timestamp, has they get the ledger, but you don't get the ledger. So it's like um, you have your money that flows out of your CBDC wallet into a system controlled by the, the central banks and their digital currencies, uh, but you don't really have like, access to them. So they gain all the access to you, but you don't gain any of the access to them. And previously, like you have your bank, regional bank or something like that, that if your banking information is stored there and it's not like some government bureaucrat can just start wandering around looking through the files of a bank somewhere or looking through the computer files of a bank or something like that. But with, um, with, with the CBDCs, who knows what level of government or how many people inside of a banking system would be able to gain access to your personal information and analyze what you're doing and all that. Is it automatically introduced into the tax records and all of that as well? Do those people gain access to it in real time as well? Uh, all of these things are, are very worth considering because it's not just like making your money more convenient. There's an entire bureaucratic network 
And of course, the power structures in there, it just goes up and up and up and up. How easy is it for those power structures through the use of software and not hardware or physical infrastructure to just start mucking around with your business? Like, we don't know. Like, we we just don't know. We have no idea the level of accessibility the government would be able to gain into or the central banks would be able to gain into our um, financial records and all of that. So things that are very worth considering. Uh, and if we don't consider them, well, geez, oh my God, it's so dangerous, isn't it? It's too dangerous because the reason why you push back against these things is so you get concessions. That's the whole reason, right? The whole reason you get ahead of it and like yammer and yammer and yammer is so that people kind of go, yeah, I don't want that. I, I, I don't want that much access. I, what is that QR code doing there? It's not just transferring money. It's transferring a, a huge bevy of data both ways, but it only goes one way for me and it's really two ways for them, isn't it? And they might say, what do you mean two ways? You're getting your change back you're sending money to the register and you're getting some change back to your phone what do you mean you got some points out of it that's two-way you conspiracy theorists but now you got to push back against this stuff um otherwise it just gets way way out of control and i would even say it's like it's time to start using bitcoin people it's time to like say oh you want me to be on a cbdc well i'm gonna take and you want all this access to my stuff i'm just gonna take everything and I'm going to put it in the Bitcoin and we're going to take it out. We're taking our ball from you and we're going. We're going to have an exodus out of this crazy system. If you want to explain yourselves, maybe we can reach a deal somehow. But until then, it's like, hmm, we got we to gotta have a little conversation about what's going on here. Uh, otherwise, you know, who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. That's the that's the analogy. Who knows? Ah, beats me. <laughs> Here we go. We're gonna take a weird look at uh, depopulation. <laughs> This Japanese village was on the verge of being deserted, so a resident filled it with life-size dolls. Now, this is a really creepy article, but this is also from ABC.net, the Australian ABC. We can take it with a grain of salt. It's um, it's like quirky Japan becomes quirky because it's quirky. It has a little bit of that, but these photos are dynamite. Um. Uh, Kimi Ayano knows her small village of Nagoro is on borrowed time. The 70-year-old resident has watched the Japanese town, which is located on the remote island of Shikoku, shrink from more than 300 people to around two dozen. Those that remain are all seniors. A child hasn't been born in the area for more than two decades. One day, like hundreds of others across Japan, the town is expected to become empty. For now, Tsukimi has found a bizarre and perhaps unsettling way to populate the village, filling its empty streets and buildings with human-sized dolls. Quote, I've always made dolls as a hobby, end quote, she said. Quote, I never thought my hobby would turn out like this, end quote. 
Skimmy began by sewing dolls to use as scarecrows because she suspected birds were eating freshly planted seeds on her property. Conspiracy theorist, I see. But what started out of necessity soon began to take a life of its own. The Valley of the Dolls. The dolls of Nogoro outnumber the residents ten to one. Each has their own distinctive character, and some are not even based on real people. Shucker! In the vacant primary school, two dolls are wearing the same clothes as the final two students who attended. Creepy. A German television journalist who did a story on the town is now immortalized at the, sh at the unused bus stop. Tsukimi's parents are also represented. The dolls weren't meant to be actual replacements of former residents, but as their numbers increased, so did the tourists stopping by. Quote, Nobody, nobody stopped by this village when there were no dolls, Tsukimi said. Now that the number of dolls has increased, people from all over the country and even from abroad have come to see them. The town has become very lively. End quote. The rise of Japan's ghost town. Then it goes on from there. So when I, I cover depopulation from time to time, and a lot of the argument is like, well, Japan had a lot of population before. It's going to go up. It's going to come back down. We'll be fine. I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, what about all of like the um, the the uh, the people on either end of the population IQ spectrum? If we're having like 800,000 fewer people born every year, uh, the amount of really, really smart people and really dumb people are going to be fewer and fewer. But Japan is an advanced society that has all these high requirements of its people. So that might just suck up all that initial talent. But right now, because of the weekend, we're seeing like import costs go way and way up. If there was an extra, I don't know, like two or three percent of a very high Q people needing work or finding opportunities, they might be able to start their own domestic production companies. But I fear there's just not enough people to make it happen and then to also enact the supply chain uh, and all that. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of music gear like this microphone I'm speaking into right now. I bought it five years ago for twenty five thousand yen, which at that time was about uh, 250 bucks American. Now the same microphone, same, same microphone, exactly the same sells for 65,000 yen. That's like a 2.5 X increase just because of the yen going down and all of that. And I'm thinking, well, why don't these other Japanese companies step in to pick up the slack and make their own, you know, production companies for all this stuff. And they kind of do. There's a lot of good microphones in, in Japan, but there's a lot of, a lot of other gear that needs to be manufactured as well. But perhaps just there's not enough population coming in that would be able to have the skills and abilities to make such a thing possible because it's it's pretty advanced technology to make good quality products at this level without having to rely on like a Chinese import export system. So there's that. So, but anyways, I'll be posting the pictures of these creepy weird weirdo dolls at MatthewPMBigelow.com. That's going to settle us for today. So thank you for joining the Japan Web Podcast, episode 120. You found it coming at you. From the armpit of Asia, in the Sammoncho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The Japan Word Podcast with me, Matt Bigelow. Until next time, everybody, I bid thee ja mata ne.
Yeah.